This passage flies in the face of what so many in the capital C church tried to do over recent decades. And I suppose this is nothing new, but it certainly has been called out and observed and even explicitly stated by many that in our attempts to keep Christians in the seats, to keep the kids in the church, to add to the congregations, the American church watered down its conception of God and its calls to holiness. Maybe not in the doctrinal statement, and and I think probably not at all in the doctrinal statement, but in the approach. For example, when I was growing up and youth ministries were everywhere in every church, there were several of them that explicitly told me, they said, we don't like to talk about God, we don't like to talk about sin or hell or blood or death. We don't like to talk about right and wrong. We just want to make friends with the kids, tell them that Jesus can be their friend. And, you know, then eventually when they have a serious issue, they can come to us and we can, you know, introduce them to Jesus. There are whole ministry books and strategies that have been written that tell you to soft pedal some of the more offensive matters of the faith and the gospel and the doctrine, or even to abandon them entirely because modern day people simply don't want to hear that. But as I've said several times and will continue to say, we have run that experiment and it was a colossal failure. There are more people leaving or have left the church now than ever before, especially the youngest generation, which was targeted specifically with that attitude. Because ironically, few people are interested in such a milquetoast religion that it's just everybody makes you feel good and God is nice and there are some rules and, and some people, I think, felt deceived that, oh, I thought this was just a really nice thing for us to come and hang out, but the longer I stick around, it turns out there's more rules to it and and people are more attracted to some of these even violent and intense ideologies, you know, going off to, to chase ISIS or to, you know, burn down the city of their choice rather than stay in the church. And that's what's happened. The denominations that have gone the farthest along that path to smooth the rough edges of God and to not talk about those things are the ones that are in the most trouble and have the hardest time retaining people to stay. But you look at a passage like this, When God welcomed Israel into his covenant, the first thing he did after they officially said, yes, we will serve you, O Lord, is he struck fear into their hearts. Isn't that a funny thing to think about? The first thing the Lord did after delivering them from sin, delivering them from Egypt and crossing the Red Sea, he says, all right, will you serve me? And they said, yes, Lord. And the first thing he's going to do is scare them to death. He's going to reveal his power and his glory at Mount Sinai. Because twice in the Bible it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. In Proverbs 9.10 it says it's the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 1.7 it says it's the beginning of knowledge. Meaning you don't know how to live a good life unless you fear the Lord. And you don't really know anything unless you fear the Lord. And most of our thoughts today, and I think this is, you know, endemic to the church. We always are having to push back on this. Most of our thoughts about God are too tame. We think too nicely about God. We grasp his love, and I want to be the last one to minimize the love of God. And I don't think I do. I spent a long time recently speaking on the grace of God from the book of Romans. But the word is going to say that God is a consuming fire. And if the love of God is the light that shines, then the the justice and the power and the might of God is the heat that comes from the fire. 
Fire is useful, it's helpful, it's bright, and it's pretty, but it's also dangerous. And I use that word carefully. Because the Bible says God is a consuming fire. Then we too, if we believe that and we do, ought to take warning and do what God will call Israel to do in this passage, which is to consecrate themselves. Because in the last analysis, to be a Christian means to be a worshiper of God. We know who God is. We know his son. We are filled with his spirit and we worship him. In that very old-fashioned way of thinking, God is real and I am his servant. We're not just subscribers to a philosophy that we have a set of things about life that we believe and we all agree to them. We're not just lovers of a story, Christmas or Easter or creation or Noah. We're not lovers of a story or just part of a community. We come together that we can do nice things for the community and for the, the country and whatever else. We are worshipers of God. And to catch a glimpse of God is a fearful thing. But if you are one of his people, the fear of the Lord will only strengthen the love that you have for the Lord later. So let's look at this passage, verses 9 through 15. And we'll take this one chunk at a time. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So last time we saw they arrived at Mount Sinai, which is the mountain region of Horeb. They've arrived at their destination. God had told Moses in the burning bush, you will worship me with your people at this mountain. And they agreed last week to God's covenant to be his kingdom of priests. And now God is going to show himself to them. Now, God tells Moses the reason for this is, number one, so that they will believe you forever. He says, I'm going to give you a lot of things to tell the people, and they're not going to believe you if they don't really think that you're hearing from God. And then number two, we don't see this until chapter 20, the Lord does this that they may fear the Lord and obey him. He says, I'm going to let the people catch a glimpse of me so that they will trust you and fear me. And to prepare for this coming, Moses is to consecrate the people. This is the Hebrew word kadash. And it means to separate or to set apart something. It can mean to sanctify, which is just that same thing, to set it apart, usually and almost always for a holy or spiritual use. There's righteousness attached to it. We get the word holy in Hebrew, which is kodesh, which is a derivation of that root kadash. So, holify the people, set them apart, make them ready. 
They were to set up boundaries around the mountain so that nobody would touch it. And any man or beast that went beyond those boundaries was to be killed, put to death. Whether that was your goat that wandered off, whether that was some person that was going to be in flagrant violation of what Moses said, they're not going to do this, so it's not going to happen, but this was the the penalty. And they were to be killed either by being stoned or by being shot with an arrow. Because the Lord says, don't you even go up there to execute my judgment. You will shoot them from a distance so that you may remain holy, consecrated, set apart. He tells them to wash their garments. Now, hopefully we wash our garments pretty regularly. But in these days, this was not as common a thing. And with a group this size, you can imagine that getting to the laundry might have been a bit of a hassle at that fountain that God had given them at the rock. But he tells them, you're all going to wash your garments, prepare yourselves. And he tells them to abstain from sexual intercourse until the third day. He says, do not go near a woman. Now, don't read any kind of sexist thing into that. The point he's saying is that you are not supposed to engage in sexual congress until afterwards. So this was not being aimed just at the men, as in don't talk to your wives or anything like that. This was for all the people. This is that idea of holiness. As we saw in the word there, the word holy means separate. Holiness means separation, especially as God is separate from us. He's separate in power. You compare a a man to the Lord, and it's hardly worth comparing. We can't even compare ourselves to something small in the same way, because even a small little insect is essentially executing the same kind of power that you are. You just have more of it. God's is on a totally separate, different plane. He's separate from us in his nature. Not only is God righteous, he does not struggle with unrighteousness because he has no sinful flesh to struggle against. By his very nature, he is holy. He's also beyond us in in the way he exists, in his trinity. Three in one and one in three. And he's separate from us, as I said, in his righteousness. There is no sin in him. There cannot be any sin in him. Therefore, because God is so ultimately holy, any place or object or person that will have contact with God must be consecrated or set apart. We even do this when we have guests coming over, don't we? You clean the house, hopefully. (laughs) You know, you've got people coming over. Nobody's ever seen what you actually live like unless they show up uninvited. And even still, you keep your own room closed, don't you? You prepare yourself. You're going out on a date with somebody. You do a little bit of consecration. You prepare yourself. You take a shower. You wash your clothes, right? You put on cologne or perfume. You're going to present your best to them. This is the idea at a much grander scale. And I had a lot of time thinking about this, and I don't know if I've quite thought it all the way to the bottom here, but... This might be something for you to meditate on. There is an object lesson in play here that God is teaching them. Don't go on the mountain because I'm holy. And you could think, well, it's not like anything was going to happen if they actually went up on the mountain. God's just trying to teach them something. Well, that's that's certainly the least of it. But there also seems to be an inherent power and danger in holiness. As we see several times in the scriptures. For example, in example, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, when Uzzah reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant, he was struck dead in an instant. 
because he, they were mishandling the ark. There's a whole story that goes into it. But you consider 2 Kings 13, when a man falls into the grave of Elisha and touches the bones of Elisha and comes back to life. There's all these interesting stories. You know, David was not allowed to build the temple because the Lord said, you are a man of blood, you're a man of war. Not that David was evil in doing that, but he was not consecrated and set apart. So there is something mysterious and wonderful and spiritual about holiness. And it's good for us to remember that because if not, we can take the everyday things that we do and say that they are the markers of holiness and you end up a Pharisee. Where if you've not, you know, washed your hands properly, then you are somehow unholy and unfit to be among the Lord. As Jesus taught us, that is not the way. So there's something deeper than just be clean, you know. Leviticus 10 verse 3. This comes after God had struck Aaron's sons dead. We believe from context they entered the temple or the tabernacle to perform sacrifices while drunk. And it says, fire came out from the altar and consumed them. And this is what Moses said to Aaron. This is what the Lord said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. That same word, kadash. He says, you are going to treat me as holy because I am holy. And the Lord does not always exercise that power, but it's important that we recognize there is something very spiritual going on here. Therefore, if we are to be in covenant with God, and we are, we are under the new covenant, we must be consecrated as they were. And we're going to look at this. There are four levels of consecration that a Christian goes through, starting with the absolutely essential and then working your way down to what you might call optional, but still good or beneficial. Let's look at this. If you want to be in covenant with the Lord, there are four kinds of consecration. The first one. Consecration from death. We are dead in our sins. The number one unholy thing that keeps you from God and prohibits you from coming into his presence is your sin. The curse that has corrupted your flesh and infected your soul. That is under the penalty of death. God cannot be in the presence of sin. Anything that is sinful in his presence melts with a fervent heat, to borrow a phrase from Peter there. We're, we're unable to approach God's holiness. So if you want to come before the God and be in covenant with him, you need the blood of Jesus to wash you clean and sanctify us. This is that initial moment of salvation. In the book of Romans, Paul uses the phrase justify. But in several other places, including, I think, other places in Romans and other books of the Bible, they'll use the term sanctify to describe your salvation. The term being set apart, that when you put your faith in Christ and you believe, your name is written in the book of life, the Holy Spirit regenerates you, you are set apart from the rest of humanity and set apart from sin. You are now able to come into the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we in him might become the righteousness of God. That's that initial consecration from death. If you want to be one of God's people, you must be saved. You must be consecrated, set apart, holified from death to approach God. That's the absolutely essential, non-negotiable foundation. Number two is consecration from sin. And this is a little different because as we've discussed lately in Romans chapter 7 and 8, you are still in your sinful flesh. Your soul has been regenerated 
But Paul tells us the spirit is alive, but the body is dead because of sin. So you are in that struggle that the Bible describes. And your life is to be a process of getting more and more actually sanctified and set apart. This is the term sanctification as we normally mean it. So sometimes in the Bible, sanctify can mean that initial moment of salvation. Very often it describes that ongoing lifelong process. Okay? Gradually, you are to be freed from the actual tyranny of sin. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the penalty of sin is gone. God no longer treats you as a sinner. God regards you as he regards his son. You are filled with the Holy Spirit of adoption, Romans 8 will tell us. But you still have that struggle against sin day by day because your body is still corrupt until it too will die and rise again. But the Holy Spirit fills us up and helps us to let go a little bit more every day and every year of our pet sins, the things that are difficult for us to let go of, so that you can be actually closer to God, that you can have closer communion with Him. 1 Peter chapter 1, he tells us to let go of the passions of our flesh, for the scripture tells us to be holy as the Lord is holy. That Christianity, yes, you are saved in that moment, but your whole life is to be one long process of getting more and more righteous, consecrated from sin. This is, this is also non-negotiable. You've got to do it. Number three is consecration from liberty. This is an interesting term, liberty. When we think of it politically, right, we think liberty is the government should not be forcing its tyranny down on us, but it means something a little different doctrinally. When we talk about liberty in the New Testament, we are talking about things that are neither sinful nor non-sinful, but for certain people can become a temptation to sin. So we have liberty to engage in these things, and they are not sinful, but Paul will go into detail in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians that these become matters of conscience for some people. And you have the liberty to do, to do them, but he says some people just don't have enough faith to walk in that liberty. And there's no shame upon that. There are many things that are not evil that we must evaluate in terms of holiness. Is this thing prohibiting me from drawing closer to God? Is it a temptation to sin? These are doubtful matters, like telling them to wash their clothes, right? You know, that's not a sinful thing to wear clothing, but you need your, your clothing to be clean if you're going to approach the Lord. These are things like entertainment. You know, you have liberty in Christ to listen to things and read things and watch things on television or online. The Bible doesn't say anything about them. There are certain, you know, thresholds where you cross over into sin, but it's important to know that you have the liberty to engage in those things. The food and the drink that we eat and we drink. Paul goes into great detail about vegetarians. There were some Christians, apparently early in the church, there was a big vegetarian movement. And Paul says, listen, if that's your, your thing and that's what your conscience is calling you to do, go for it. He says, but don't go and try and put that on somebody else, right? I, I think even the drinking of alcohol certainly falls under this. Smoking would fall under this, right? How you dress in certain ways. Some people, you're raised a certain way, and it's like, I just can't show up in blue jeans to church. Okay. All of these things. But when we become consecrated from our liberty, this is what Paul says in Romans 14, 14. He says, nothing is unclean of itself, but for him who believes it is unclean, it is unclean. 
You're, you're not bound by some things, but certain things, they afflict your conscience and they do result in you sinning. So there are certain things, as the Bible makes very clear, that some people have to say no to that other people can say yes to. There are some folks that it's not a big deal for them to watch that TV show that everybody's watching. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't stir up anything wicked in them. There are others that get really engaged into that stuff, and it's like, if I watch it, I'm going to get sucked in, and I'm going to start talking that way. And you've got to be able to evaluate this as a mature believer to see which one is tempting me to sin. Is this drawing me away from the Lord, or is it drawing me closer? And you might have the liberty to do it, but as Paul says, in this context, by the way, all things are lawful but not all things are helpful. So you must be consecrated from some of your liberties, and it can be a mark of Christian maturity to say, I don't have a problem with that, but I'm not going to do it for the sake of conscience and for the sake of other people. This is not to say that not doing certain things that we have the liberty to do will make you less holy. I'm talking about whatever the proportion looks like for you and your life, whatever your conscience and, and your maturity in Christ dictates, that's the level of consecration you need to have. You know, there might be some people that they, they watch that, they eat that, they drink that, but you know that if I engage in that, it would be sinful for me. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, the Bible says. So consecrate yourself from it. Separate yourself from it. I'm not going to do that because it wouldn't be helpful for me and it's not going to make me closer to Jesus Christ. These are those weights that the book of Hebrews talks about, right? Setting aside every sin and every weight that easily ensnares us. Number four is consecration from blessing. Consecration from death, which is salvation. Consecration from sin, which is ongoing sanctification. Consecration from liberty, which is matters of conscience. And number four, consecration from blessing, good things that we give up for the sake of Christ. You see that the Lord had them abstain from sexual intercourse. It is abundantly clear in scripture that sex is not a sin. God brought Adam and Eve together in the Garden of Eden. Read the book of Song of Solomon. It celebrates that union between a husband and wife. It is to be undefiled, the book of Hebrews tells us, which is don't, don't come in and, and bring in all kinds of crazy sin, but also don't put some weird stigma attached to it that shouldn't be there. So we know this is a good thing. Yet when the Lord was coming, he told them for three days, abstain from sexuality. Well, wait a minute, you said this was a good thing. Yeah, but you know what? Sometimes it is appropriate to let go of good things in order to have a higher focus upon the Lord. In preparation for meeting with God, it is appropriate to abstain from your blessings. Things that, you know, it's not even a matter of conscience. Everybody agrees this is a good thing. You, you know, it's, it's a good thing to have food during the day, but we fast. We say, I'm going to take the day and I'm not going to eat. I'm going to take the week and I'm not going to eat, that I may draw closer to the Lord. I'm going to take the time away from, from junk food or from secular music so that I can focus on the Lord. And yeah, the Bible does say it is appropriate sometimes to abstain from sexual intercourse. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 says, The only time a husband or wife is permitted to withhold that right from their spouse is through mutual consent for a period of fasting. Mutual consent, that's important. He says, you don't get to say, oh, I'm keeping myself from you because I'm fasting. It's a really good way to bring a lot of, a big rift into your marriage and also between you and the Lord. There are times when you can say, you know what, we're not doing this. This is a good thing, but we're not doing it this week. 
This is a blessing that God has given us. This money is a good thing, but I'm going to give it away because I want to be generous. Nobody's making me do it. Nobody's telling me I have to do it, but just that I can make that one show of obedience and devotion to Christ. These are these four levels of consecration from death, from sin, from liberty, and blessing. You can see how they go from absolutely essential to beneficial, but not necessary. If God is holy, set apart, we also must be holy and set apart. Because the Bible tells us that we are temples of the living God himself. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. You will see as we go through this, how much attention God paid to the holiness of the tabernacle and the holy place, the gold and the, and the tapestries and the carvings and how it needed to be cleaned and maintained and the lights could never go out. It was a special holy place. And likewise with you. The Christian faith is not about trying to see how much you can get away with and still technically not be sin. It's about trying to be as holy as possible. And you will find God in your holiness. As you draw closer to God and lay aside the things of this world, you will find more and more of the Lord in your life. And we may hear some of that and think, well, that's a little bit of overkill, don't you think? Well, I think in that case, our view of God is too small. If we think even giving up blessings for the Lord is, is too much, then we need to have a larger view of God or maybe of our own sin. Let's look at verses 16 through 20. It's exactly what we're going to get here. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Imagine this day. It's been two days of preparation. God is going to come and show himself. What do you think it's going to be like? And then on the third day, it says that storm clouds began to gather around the skies of Mount Sinai. It began to get dark. It began to rumble. There was lightning, and the lightning was crackling, and the thunder was rolling, and the clouds were getting thicker and thicker. And everyone begins to, to worry. We've all been outside when the tornado's rolling in and the thunderstorms are getting heavy. Imagine that, but more so. And then suddenly he said there was a loud trumpet blast. This wasn't Moses telling some guy, now you blow the trumpet. This was probably an angelic herald blowing the trumpet for the Lord. And it said it just got louder and louder and louder and louder. And at that moment, smoke began to rise up like a furnace from this mountain. There was, would have been heat and crackling flames coming out of this smoke and the thunder and the lightning and the clouds and the, the bright sun in the desert had been blotted out by this bright or by this dark cloud and the, the fire that was coming out of it. And it says in another place, there were voices coming out and shouts and this trumpet is just increasing louder and louder. Imagine the heat coming off of this mountain. You ever been real close to a bonfire before? You know what that feels like. But the, Moses says, come on. Come close. The earth is shaking. The mountain was shaking. And they're supposed to draw near and get closer as that trumpet goes. And you can imagine as all the people are ascended, all the noise and the light and the sound, Moses calls out to the Lord. 
And it says, God answered Moses like a thunderclap. Have you ever been at your house or driving and you've heard a thunderclap that just shook your walls? Made your dog freak out and start running around the house or your kids come crying out of bed? It's impressive. Sometimes you can see it out the window when the lightning flash is really bright. You know, oh, here it comes. And when it's far away, thunder sounds like a rumble. But when it's close, it just sounds like a crack, doesn't it? Somebody took a tree and snapped it in half. Imagine a sound like that comes crashing out of the mountain and it says, Moses, come up here. That's incredible. Imagine what these people are thinking. They're shaking in their boots. All of the animals would have been going nuts, right? God has come to Mount Sinai. And there are those some really tedious people that want to say things like, well, clearly Mount Sinai was a volcano, and clearly it was erupting. If it's erupting, those people are all dead, first of all. And second of all, volcanoes do not erupt on your timetable. You don't say, all right, in three days, that, you know, Mount St. Helens is going to blow. No, 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 no. This is what is called a theophany. This is an important doctrinal word to know, theophany. It comes from the Greek word theos, which means God, like theology, and phani, as in an epiphany. It means appearance. So this is an appearance of God. Maybe you've heard the word Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Christ. God is showing himself. Now, now God is omnipresent. The Bible says that the Lord fills heaven and earth, and you can't escape from his presence. But he will reveal himself, especially in certain places and at certain times. That apparently God allowed his holy presence to manifest itself on the earth. And when it did, this is what happened. When God allows his presence to be revealed just a little more on the earth, fire, darkness, trumpets, lightning, the earth reeling and rocking as God sets his foot on that mountain. I'll give you one example. The Old Testament uses Mount Sinai language over and over again to describe the presence of the Lord, especially in the context of battle or warfare. So when Nahum is pronouncing judgment against Assyria, he will call back to this language. You'll recognize it. Nahum 1, 5 through 6. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. That's about right. How must the Israelites have felt being brought right up close to this mountain that you were told for three days that if you cross this line, you're going to be killed? Now Moses says, come right up to the barrier. Who's the guy up in the front <laughs> the very front of the line. And you can see the smoke and the fire and the mountain is shaking and the earth is heaving, as Nahum said, underneath their feet. And there's thunderclaps and this trumpet that is just holding this one long sustained note that's just getting louder and louder and louder. They probably were afraid. <laughs> it says they trembled, which is exactly what God wanted. This was the whole point of this. First of all, to show that Moses could come and go from the presence of God. They heard him call his name and call him up. But also that they might fear the Lord. They need to know, needed to know that this Yahweh, this I am that Moses had proclaimed to them, was not just some petty spirit. 
He was not just some petty tribal deity that was going to help lead them out of Egypt and then they'll be one among the nations. But that he is the true and living God, terrible in power and glory. I like that word terrible because it catches your attention. The word terrible just means to cause terror, able to terrify, right? And we usually use it with a negative moral connotation, but I don't mean that. I mean that that way, awesome, cause you to be filled with awe, terrible, striking terror into your heart. Whenever somebody in the Bible enters the presence of God, the first thing he has to do is calm their fears. All that stuff where people enter the presence of God and it's a calm, soothing garden and there's a little babbling brook and a deer. That's Hollywood. That's not Bible. Even when good, holy men see the presence of God, it scares them to death. Consider Isaiah. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and the temple pillars were shaking and there was smoke. Every time the Lord shows up somewhere, smoke and fire. And these angels were shouting, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah, the prophet, the one who spoke for God, had been familiar with the voice of the Lord, but not like this. Woe is me, for I am undone. And God provided the, the coal that cleansed his lips, you remember. Daniel, the holy, righteous Daniel, who had endured the lion's den and everything else. In Daniel chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, it says that when he saw the angel, and some people believe that this was a theophanic appearance that he sees here, he passed out. He, he says, I became like a dead man. I fell to the ground and the angel had to help him up. This happened a few times to him when he saw this shining man and this description of the man that he saw is very similar to what we see in Revelation chapter 1 when John sees Jesus in his glory. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 went to see the Lord after Jezebel had issued a warrant for his execution and he flees to Mount Sinai and the word of the Lord comes to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he whines, I'm the only one left to serve you, Lord. And it says that the Lord passed by in fire and in a wind and in an earthquake. And then the Lord whispered to him. There's a great lesson there. But you also ought to know that fire and earthquakes and winds that smash rocks into pieces proceed before the Lord. In the book of John, or sorry, the book of Revelation, the apostle John, even some of the angels that he saw, were so glorious that he would fall down to his knees and attempt to worship. And they would say, no, 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 I'm just a servant like you. And if an angel that can stand with one foot in the sea and one foot on the land and a rainbow in his hair say, no, no, I'm just a servant just like you, how glorious must the Lord be? Remember Job and all his foolishness? I wish God was here right now. I'd tell him exactly what was what, and that he, it was, wasn't right for him to do this. And it says, the Lord appeared in a great whirlwind and said, did you have something to say to me, Job? Job said, nope, nope, I repent in dust and ashes, and I have nothing to say. And God goes, no, 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 you stand up. I'm going to answer your questions. God's presence is so holy that even the mountain where he treads will, well, it must be consecrated. He says, even this mountain, don't have anybody touch it for a few days because I'm about to come. His power is so great that mountains shake and groan at his approach. We all exist at the good pleasure of the powerful creator who breaks the rocks into pieces. You're not somehow the author of your own existence. 
The Lord could snuff you out in a second if he wanted to. Are you trying to scare me? Yes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. You've got to know who God is. If any of this is going to mean anything to you, if the whole rest of this Bible is going to have any kind of impact, you have to grasp who this God is. You say, well, what about Jesus? Yes. Jesus Christ showed us the mercy and the love of God, which the Lord himself had already demonstrated by delivering them out of Egypt with the ten plagues, right? This God that, that caused the mountain to quake when he became flesh was Jesus Christ. Now, see, there you go. Jesus was, you know, the kind, sweet man that never hurt anybody. Even Jesus, y'all, had a fire in him. You know how you know? When the demons caught sight of Jesus, what did they do? They freaked out. They started begging on hands and knees for Jesus not to hurt them. They knew who they were dealing with. The first time Jesus preached in the synagogue at Capernaum, there was a demon-possessed man that stood up and began to scream and shriek, Why are you here? What are you going to do with me? When Jesus came to the man that had the legion of demons, who spooked and terrified this whole town for years, they begged him, Please don't send us to the abyss. Please let us go live in pigs. Just don't hurt us. These horrifying demons were scared to death of Jesus. Because of the power that was in him. And you know that if you read the Gospels, Jesus was more than just, you know, Fabio walking around saying nice things to people with the long flowing hair. Jesus was a hard man in the best sense of the term. If any man does not take up his cross and follow me, he is not worthy to be my disciple. Jesus went into that temple, turned tables over and beat people with a whip to get out of there. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who said, love your enemies. All of that is true. He also said, not one stone of this temple will be left standing. But if you tear down this temple, I'll build it back up again in three days. No one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and to pick it back up again. That's our Lord Jesus. And when Jesus died, don't you remember what happened? It said that the sky grew dark and the, there was a massive earthquake and tombs popped open and the veil of the temple was ripped in two. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. I have a special love for this passage, not just because it's, it's wonderful and it's a really manly description of Jesus, but uh, this was the passage that I was reading when the Lord first gave me the gift of tongues, so I always love reading this one. But let's read this. You know, the Bible reveals Jesus to us as the lamb who was slain at his first advent. But at his second advent, he comes as a roaring lion. And John describes that for us in Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So this is Jesus, the Word made flesh. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus returns to establish his kingdom, he will come as a conqueror and no one will stand before him. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. All of that was within that shepherd from Nazareth while he walked on the earth. But he was extending mercy and grace and forgiveness. But the day will come when judgment must be executed. So many of our perceptions of God are incomplete. Maybe not ours in this room, but ours in our cultural consciousness. Atheists love to make fun of faulty definitions of God. And I say things like, well, if that's what I thought God was like, I wouldn't worship him either. He's not the kind old grandfather in the sky with a big old beard. And if you need anything, you just come and tell me. He's not a genie who grants you wishes. There are some Christians that treat God that way. He's not the indulgent school principal who tells you the rules, but if you break them, oh, well, I admire your spirit, so I'm not going to do anything to you. People want to point at that and mock that. That's why I don't worship God. Like, Well, I don't worship that either. God is a king. We don't know anything about kings anymore. The only monarchs we know of are the the Queen of England. She doesn't have any real power. She just rides around in in a nice car every so often. Think dictator. Think if you were hauled before a king with absolute power, that everybody in that room is going to do what he says, even if it means off with his head. Our God is a warrior. Something else we don't know so much about. We haven't had a war on our own shores for a very long time. But somebody who is a fighter, he's a judge, and he's a consuming fire. Do you fear the Lord? If you know who God really is, you can do no other than fear the Lord. And there's nothing cute, by the way, with that word fear. Oh, fear, it means reverence. It means, okay, yeah, yes, it does. But it also means fear. (laughs) They trembled before the Lord. Isaiah was terrified. And people will say, well, I don't want you to be afraid of God. Well, listen, I want you to be afraid of God as a starting point. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. If you don't start there... If you don't establish God's authority and his power and his glory, then the rest of it, as I said, will make no sense to you. So verse 21, Moses is up on the mountain now. Whoa, what was that like? Walking up the mountain, fire and smoke and shouts and thunder and lightning. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Apparently, there was already some kind of rudimentary priesthood even before the one that God will establish later. And Moses said to the Lord, verse 23, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So on top of the mountain, God tells Moses, the first thing he says is what he's already told him. Tell the people, they can't come up here. And Moses goes, they can't come up here. We've already set up barriers. They know. I've already told them that. And God goes, tell them again, lest I break out 
against. And that word breakout is the same word as paras, I believe, in Hebrew that was used when Uzzah touched the Ark of the Covenant. It says the Lord broke out against him, right? So God says, go and tell him again. And then bring Aaron with you the next time you come. And we'll get to that next time. In Exodus 20, after the Ten Commandments are given, Moses will return to receive the law. And apparently, Aaron was with him. Even after his prior warning, God re-emphasized that the people must be consecrated. This is because sometimes, despite the experiences with God you've had or the lessons you've learned, you must be reminded, like you're being reminded tonight, that holiness is essential for communion with God. Even in the New Testament, God would strike hypocrites dead. Ananias and Sapphira, in Acts chapter 5, lied about how much money they gave. And God struck them dead in the temple. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30 tells us that there were some people God was afflicting with sickness and some of them were even dying from it because they were taking communion in an unholy way. They were showing up and getting drunk at the communion table and letting the poor people and the rich people eat it in different places. So God says, you know what? Not in my church. And in fact, there is a greater requirement for holiness upon you as a Christian than there was for an Israelite under the old covenant. The book of Hebrews makes this clear, that although it was less spectacular with thunder and lightning and fire, God's redemption through Jesus Christ, the cross, the empty tomb, all the miracles that he did, that was a greater way of speaking to us than on the mountain. It was Jesus Christ, God speaking directly and purchasing our salvation, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood of his own son. Therefore, it is more pressing for us to be holy before God, first by accepting his salvation, obviously, but then walking in it by the Holy Spirit. For it's the same Lord. There's no distinction between Old Testament and New Testament God. He's the same Lord. And in Hebrews chapter 12, he refers to this passage, and I'm only going to read some of these verses for time's sake, but he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That would be the Lord Jesus and his Holy Spirit. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He's saying if God was going to strike down the Israelites for making the golden calf and for all that they did in the wilderness, how much more are you in trouble if you walk away from the Lord? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. What does acceptable worship look like? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The writer to the Hebrews is reminding them. He says, don't think that because you're saved in Christ Jesus, you're somehow off the hook from walking in holiness. He says, you're on, you're on a, a greater hook, <laughs> Because of what Christ has done. He says, if God wouldn't spare them under the shabby old covenant, then what about now? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery. It's a higher standard. So we approach the Lord, he says, in worship with reverence and awe. So often we frivolously and carelessly call for the presence of the Lord. Show yourself, God. And I think sometimes the Lord hears that and he goes, 
y'all couldn't handle it today. The Lord breaks the rock into pieces. He says he's a consuming fire, that his words are like a hammer. I want you to love the presence of the Lord and to be at home there. Like Moses was at home, we're going to see in the tent of meeting where he saw God face to face. I want that to be true of you. It is your right and your gift as a child of God that we approach boldly the throne of grace. But of necessity, if you have that same access, then there is a greater responsibility on you to be consecrated. That your worship cannot be frivolous. Worship is to bow before the Lord. To actually bow before the Lord. To acknowledge His glory and seek His help. It's not just having a dynamic singing session or having your emotions all stirred up or having your intellect sufficiently satiated by the words that were spoken or sung today. It's coming to God himself. And you say, well, we're not coming to him like they were. Yes, you are. He dwells within you. Your heart is that holy place. And when we gather together, the Lord says he is there in a special way. And so there ought to be a sense of fear and reverence and awe in those moments. And I'd say if you approach the throne of God in a frivolous way, you will have frivolous experiences. But if you recognize that God is a consuming fire, you will be driven to obedience and reverence. You've been cleansed by Jesus Christ. You are welcome there. I'm not trying to say that you're not. But when you come into God's house, into this room or whatever room to sing and to worship and to pray, this is not your domain. It is his. And even when you come up on that mountain, as Moses did, into the presence of God, the first reminder is to be consecrated, to be holy. Isn't it shameful when we see worship leaders who are caught in gross sin? We see that they were writing these songs about obedience and worship, and then they, they get caught in adultery or pornography or financial mismanagement or whatever it is. Some recording comes out with the language that they use behind closed doors. Why do we despise that so much? Because they're treating the holy presence of God as something that can be carelessly tossed aside when they're not in the moment. It's a job. It's an occupation for them. It's the same thing for you and for me. You must be holy as He is holy. And when you come to the presence of the Lord in this place to worship, it has to be an attitude of fear. And worship. Because God struck fear into the hearts of his covenant people. The first thing. He saved them. Will you be my servants? Yes. And the next thing he did was reveal himself in order to scare them to death. You must fear the Lord as well today. If you do not grasp the power and the glory and the fire of God, his mercy will not seem wonderful to you. It will seem deserved. It'll seem like something you are owed. God has to save me. I prayed the prayer, therefore he has to let me in. I started playing the song, the Holy Spirit has to show up. I've been preaching, God has to convict people. That is when God stays his hand and says, I want nothing to do with that. If you come in and you start treating God's grace as a common thing, Hebrews will say. Something, well, yeah, it's for everybody. Yeah, God has to. He's already said it, so he's stuck now. Ha <laughs> ha, I got God right where I want him. Oh, I can always come back. I can do whatever I want. God will forgive me. He has to forgive me because he said he would. God is not an equation, people. 
God doesn't get stuck in his own laws like King Darius did. Oh, you have to throw Daniel in the lion's den because the law says so. You try that with God, you're going to be wondering what hits you. But if you recognize that God is a consuming fire, and that that fire is not just power, it's not just Zeus or Vulcan or whatever false god, that this is God's raging, blazing holiness, righteousness, His goodness burning on the mountain, then you realize, I have no right to approach the Lord. But then when you are invited in, like Moses was, and God covers you with the blood of his own son, that you might stand in his presence, now the mercy of God means something to you. Now the grace is amazing as we sing. This is why Jesus said, he who is forgiven much, loves much. When you recognize how far God had to raise you up, then you will appreciate the heights to which he has lifted you, which is why you must know the fear of the Lord first, because our God is a consuming fire. So as we bring it to a close, let me ask you, how must you be further consecrated? I hope you're saved. I hope you've put your faith in Jesus, that you've at least entered into the covenant and been covered by his blood and sanctified from death. If not, you have no share in these things and you ought to be very scared. But what about consecration from sin? Are you increasing in obedience? We're coming to the end of 2021. Are you more obedient to God now than you were this time last year? Are you lying less are you committing less sexual immorality? Are you less prideful? Are you less selfish? Are you less worrisome? Are you more kind, more loving, more patient? Is there more joy and peace in your life now? And if not than last year, then how about two years ago or five or ten? Are you increasing in obedience? How about consecration from liberty? Are you evaluating your privileges constantly? Saying, is this something I need or is this something I do because everybody does it? Is this drawing me closer to Christ or not? Do I actually have this liberty or do I just know that somebody else does and I want it? Therefore, I'm treating it and calling it a liberty. You might not. It might cause you to sin every time. Are you evaluating your privileges? And have you ever let go of a good thing for God's sake? Ever? Have you ever said, this is a good thing, but I'm going to give it away? As Abraham learned, you can never own anything until you've given it away to the Lord. And Hebrews 12, 14 tells us to strive for holiness. Strive for holiness, without which none of us will see the Lord. You know what striving is? You ever watch the NFL Combine? Where half a second difference on your 40-yard sprint can be the difference between millions of dollars and going and coaching gym somewhere? And you see them run and their face gets all into it. Or they have to jump higher. They've got to lift the weight. That's striving. Their whole life has come to that moment and they're going to push. They're going to strain. They're going to strive. Is that what it's like for you being holy? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body into submission to make it obey Christ. The greater your holiness too, and I'm not talking again about those weird things that we do. Well, I have short hair, therefore I'm more holy than you. I'm talking about real spiritual holiness. The greater it is, the more clearly you'll see the Lord. 
It is true, isn't it, that the hard truths of God are the most wonderful. The things that are a little difficult to grasp at first or that don't suit our flesh right away are the most wonderful things once we've believed them. And the glory of God is always for our good. So let's not water down our conception of God in order to retain doubters and backsliders. I don't like that about God. It doesn't matter if you don't like that about God. We're not making this stuff up. That's who God is, like it or not. Because once you can realize these hard things about God, you can take the next step. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the love of the Lord is the end. And you realize that all that consuming fire and that righteousness has worked to cover you and save you. And that now that blazing mountaintop is on your side. And as it says in Psalm 18, that that glory of God rides into battle to save you. And that that flame and that fire is not just judgment, but it's that burning heart of love that would send Jesus to the cross and raise him from the dead for the joy that was set before him. Then you will truly know joy. That's what Christianity is. It is the knowledge of God. In John 17, 7, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Seek the knowledge of God. Savor it once you have it. And set yourself apart for it.